This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We have a tradition here at OUAC that at the end of the year, we pull up all the cases suggested by listeners and pick a few to feature in our November episodes. I love that my listeners contribute to the show by sending me emails and messages over social media and sharing ideas for other cases I might not have heard about. That makes you part of the podcast, and I thank you so much. So, from the dozens of suggestions we received, I've picked three fascinating cases to cover this month. Our first case was suggested by Maria via our webpage. I had heard of this truly bizarre case in the past, and I'm glad she brought it back to my attention. This story has been called the John Bonet Ramsey case of Mexico. It parallels the JBR case in several ways. It's a mysterious disappearance of a little girl from her own bedroom, the family members are the initial suspects, and the victim is found very close to home in what could be called a bizarre twist. This is the case of the disappearance of Paulette Hebara Farah. Paulette Hebara Farah lived in Huizquilucan, Mexico, with her parents, Lizette Farah and Mauricio Hebara, and her older sister, also named Lizette. Paulette's parents were accomplished professionals who provided a privileged upbringing for their two young daughters. The family lived in an upscale, highly secure building west of Mexico City, Mexico. Mauricio Hebara provided well for his family in real estate. He and his brothers had built a successful business buying and selling luxury properties. Lizette Fada, his wife, was a respected attorney. The Hebadas both worked outside of the home, but their daughters were cared for by two nannies, attended top-notch private schools, and wanted for nothing. But not all was sunshine and roses for the Hebadas. When their youngest daughter, Paulette, was born in 2005, she was saddled with a number of health and developmental issues. Born early, just six and a half months into her mother's pregnancy, she was so tiny that doctors didn't give her a very high chance of surviving. But tiny Paulette was a fighter and survived her first few crucial months of life. However, as she grew, it became clear that her premature birth had resulted in a number of complications. The developmental stages of her first years of life were delayed, and by the time she was two or three years old, it was clear that both her speech and mobility had been severely affected. By the age of four, Paulette could neither speak nor walk on her own and was dependent on others for most of her needs. Their two nannies, sisters Erica and Martha Casimiro, had been employed part-time since the birth of their first child, seven-year-old Lizette, and their duties increased once Paulette was born. Fortunately, Paulette's parents had the financial resources needed to provide the best care for her, which included frequent visits to the doctor's office for testing and medication, round-the-clock care, and the extra help and tutoring she needed once she began kindergarten. In March of 2010, Mauricio took Lizette and Paulette on a three-day vacation to Valle de Bravo for a long weekend on the lake. Note, the Habata's oldest daughter had the same first name as her mother, so hopefully that doesn't get confusing. Their mother stayed home and awaited the return on Sunday, March 21st. When Mauricio returned with the children, it was already growing late. Lizette dressed her two sleepy daughters in their pajamas before tucking them into their separate rooms for the night. On Monday morning, their nanny Erica arrived as usual to get the girls up, dressed, fed, and ready for school. 
When she entered Paulette's room, she observed that she was not in her bed. This was unusual, since Paulette could not get out of bed on her own. But Erica also knew that sometimes, when the little girl wasn't feeling well or had a bad dream, she would call out for her parents and they would come and pick her up and place her in their room for the night. The nanny then made her way to the master bedroom. Mauricio had already left for work and only Lizette was in the room. Erica inquired about Paulette, but to her surprise, her boss said she had not moved the four-year-old from her bed after tucking her in. Lizette and the staff began searching for Paulette. This was immediately alarming since, as I mentioned, Paulette was not able to get out of bed or walk without help. Because of this, panic immediately set in. The house was searched from top to bottom more than once, with everyone becoming more frantic by the minute. The entire apartment and the building were searched multiple times, but there was no sign of Paulette. Mauricio rushed home from work and called the police. By this time, the family had begun to believe that their daughter had been kidnapped. There was no other explanation as she could not have wandered off on her own. The state police were called and noted that all the doors and windows of the Hibata's apartment had been locked at the time of the little girl's disappearance, nor were there any signs of forced entry. As the hours passed with no ransom demands made, investigators began taking a closer look at those on the inside, the family staff, and of course, Lizette and Mauricio themselves. Word quickly spread of the four-year-old who had seemingly vanished from her bedroom in the middle of the night. The media picked up on the story once the family began printing and distributing posters of their missing daughter. The photo of the adorable four-year-old with curly brown hair dressed in a blue and pink princess costume was widely distributed in the state and then around the country. Social media postings soon followed on Facebook and Twitter. Before long, the national media had also picked up the story. Television news programs sought interviews with Paulette's parents. An 800 number was set up for the public to provide any tips that might aid in the search for the toddler. The evening after Paulette disappeared, Lizette released a message on national television pleading with her daughter's abductors. She asked them to please return Paulette and explain that it was crucial she be administered medication or she could become very ill. She asked them to please drop Paulette off at a shopping center or other crowded location as soon as possible. If they did so, she promised that there would be no consequences. They just wanted Paulette returned safely. Some did comment, however, that Lizette Fara came off as very matter-of-fact and unemotional. Still others speculated that it was her nervousness at being on television that caused her to seem so formal, while making what should have been a heartfelt plea to her daughter's kidnappers. Investigators continued to seek out answers about the mysterious disappearance of little Paulette. Her family's home had been searched thoroughly multiple times. In addition, search and rescue dogs were called in to make a sweep of the Hibata's home and the surrounding neighborhood. And yet, there was still no sign of Paulette as the hours and then the days passed. Then on March 29th, a week after Paulette's disappearance, the state's attorney general, Alberto Basbaz, announced to the press that Mauricio and Lizette Gabara, as well as their nannies, Erica and Martha Casimiro, were being placed under restriction order. Basically, this meant that they were suspects in the police investigation and were being held until investigators could determine if they were involved in the disappearance of Paulette. The attorney general said that he had made this decision based on, quote, falsehoods and inconsistent statements made by all four of the people who'd been in the home at the time of the little girl's disappearance. Quote, each one of them have falsified their statements, which has made it difficult to know the truth of the facts 
and clarify a firm line of investigation, the Attorney General stated. He further stated that there was no doubt in his mind that this was a homicide investigation. In his mind, Lizette Farah was the only suspect, as she had been the parent in charge of the little girl and had been the last person to see her alive. Two days later, a discovery in the case of the missing four-year-old would rock the public, and no one would know exactly what to think. Four-year-old Paulette Hebara had simply vanished from her room one night in March of 2010. Investigators were baffled, as the little girl was unable to walk on her own. Initially, they were under the assumption that she had been kidnapped, but no ransom demand was received. Now suspicion fell on her parents, particularly her mother, Lizette. The attorney general, who was overseeing the investigation, would only say that false statements and discrepancies had been made, and Lizette was now their primary suspect. Whether her husband Maurizio and their two nannies were involved or had knowledge of what had befallen Paulette was still under investigation. As the four suspects were being held for questioning, investigators sent a forensic team back to the Hebara's apartment to do yet another thorough search. It had now been nine days since Paulette had gone missing. This time, the entire search would be recorded on video. On March 31st, three investigators were sent to the home and began the search. As the team moved into Paulette's room, one moved the blankets to reveal two large bloodstains. What is this, one can be heard saying. The camera then moves down and toward the foot of the bed. The forensics team then removes all the sheets from the platform bed's mattress. There, between the mattress and footboard of the bed, they find the body of Paulette Hibara. She was found wrapped in a sheet, her body lying wedged in a small crevice lying on its side. Now, why this case is so bizarre is that one, Multiple searches had been done of the bedroom as well as the entire home over nine days. Two, tracking dogs were given blankets from the bed to try and detect Paulette's scent, and yet police failed to locate her. And three, Paulette's mother had actually conducted interviews sitting on the same bed where her daughter's decomposing body was found. Even more disturbing, a good friend of Lizette Farah's, Amanda De La Rosa, came to offer her support to the family and slept for the first two evenings after the disappearance in Paulette's room in her bed. Nothing had been found amiss until late Tuesday, March 31st. Later, it was reported that the video taken of the discovery was a reenactment, and her body had actually been found earlier that day. This makes more sense, since the timestamp on the video states the time of recording as 2 a.m. It would have been very unlikely for the forensics team to be conducting a search at that hour unless they'd received an urgent request due to the discovery. But there are some other odd details about this video in general. First, it does appear to be scripted. When you hear someone say, what is this, after discovering the bloodstains, it's not said in a tone of surprise or alarm, but very matter-of-factly. The second thing is that immediately after discovering these bloodstains, but before the body was found, you hear one team member saying, quote, she was severely beaten, end quote, which of course would be impossible to know beforehand but makes sense after learning the video was staged to reenact the discovery. And why reenact it? Most likely for two reasons. Because there was great interest in the case by the public and the media, and because the Attorney General was feeling pressured to solve the case as quickly as possible. To this end, he had already declared it a homicide investigation and placed blame on Lizette Farah. After finding the body and blood evidence, the first narrative that was crafted was that Paulette had been murdered in her home most likely by a family member. 
But the medical examiner's report would soon force them to change their story. The autopsy conducted the same day Paulette was found determined that the approximate time of death was between five and nine days prior to the discovery of the body. It was further determined that Paulette had last eaten about five hours before she died, and there were no signs of physical or sexual violence found, and there was no trace of drugs or other substances detected that could have contributed to her death. The conclusion was that Paulette's death had been a tragic accident. She turned herself around in the bed while asleep and accidentally fell headlong into the space at the foot of her bed. Wedged in between the mattress and frame, and unable to move on her own due to her physical disabilities, Paulette had suffocated. Just hours later, Attorney General Alberto Bazbaz released a new statement saying that Paulette died accidentally from, quote, medical asphyxia due to obstruction of the nasal cavities and thorax abdominal compression, end quote. Her death was an unfortunate accident, he concluded. But the damage to Lizette Habata's reputation, once she was suspected of her daughter's murder, was not easily repaired. Many didn't buy the story that Paulette had been lying dead in her own bedroom for almost 10 days. The public and the media continued to discuss conspiracy theories and murder plots. My assumption was that this case would have immediately been compared to the investigation of the John Benet Ramsey case 14 years earlier. The details are quite similar to Paulette's. The missing child allegedly kidnapped from her own bed the discovery of the body in the child's own home after searches had been conducted, and the immediate suspicion that fell upon her family. But I discovered that it had been most frequently compared to the Susan Smith case, perhaps a case more familiar to citizens of Mexico, but that's just a guess on my part. If you're not familiar with that case, I'll quickly summarize it for you. In 1994, Susan Smith claimed she'd been carjacked while driving in Union, South Carolina. Smith reported to police that her two sons, three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander were strapped in their car seats when the carjacker drove off with them. She made several tearful statements to reporters pleading for the return of her children before it was determined that she had killed the boys and blamed it on a carjacking. Smith's motivation, according to prosecutors, was that she felt her children were getting in the way of a new love interest. I covered that case in detail in episode 40 titled Monstrous Moms and Dastardly Dads, Susan Smith. But much like the JonBenet Ramsey case, there were those who could not be swayed from the opinion that it was the mother who was responsible for the death of their child. The theories were the typical ones in these types of cases. The mother had killed in a fit of rage over another mess or accident to clean up, or she snaps and strikes out, gravely injuring or killing her child. Or the mother feels their child is a burden and plots to get rid of them and make it look like an accident. In Lizette Fada's case, investigators had already pointed to her as the culprit and even had a psychiatrist who was working with the police make a statement regarding Lizette's mental state. Sandra Yadiam, a forensic psychiatrist, said this of Paulette's mother, quote, We have before us a lawyer, intelligent, bold, astute. She has always remained very distant in matters of affection and emotional attachment. She has lied. In short, there are characteristics that speak of a mental disorder, end quote. Television interviews done with Lizette at the time her daughter was missing were now replayed repeatedly and analyzed for clues of her guilt. That she didn't show the appropriate amount of emotion or she didn't shed a tear when sitting amongst the personal belongings of her missing daughter were some of the comments made by the public. And other information came out during the course of the investigation that some pointed to as more evidence of her guilt. Lizette was having an affair before her daughter's death, it was reported, 
which made her seem more guilty in the eyes of some of the public. As well, a statement Lizette made, which was caught on audio tape, was also put forth as evidence of her involvement in Paulette's death. Lizette is overheard telling her seven-year-old daughter not to speak to anyone about her sister's disappearance. When the child asks why, Lizette answers, because otherwise they will blame us for stealing Paulette or that you took her away to be stolen, end quote. Lizette would first deny making the statement until the audio was released. She then said that her statement had been made out of context. In another videotape made during the investigation, Lizette is interviewed in Paulette's room. One of the reporters points to a pair of pajamas in the room, a red and blue two-piece pajama set with reindeer figures printed on them. This is the exact description of the pajamas Paulette was said to be wearing when she went missing. Lizette tells the reporter on camera that this set belongs to Paulette's big sister. Later, when Paulette is found dead, some would insist that she had been killed and then placed back in her room to be found. She was found dressed in the reindeer pajamas. According to this theory, that proves that Paulette had been moved after death, dressed in the pajamas that had been seen earlier in the video, and then returned to make her death appear to be an accident. On April 3rd, three days after the district attorney declared Paulette's death an accident, Lizette Fada began amparo proceedings against the court's restriction orders for herself, her husband, and their two nannies. A writ of amparo is a legal filing that one can take in Mexico's legal system to protect their constitutional rights. In it, Lizette states that she had taken no part in her child's death. The following day, a judge granted release to all four suspects. They were free to go, but told not to leave the area until the investigation was concluded. Upon his release, Mauricio Habada began pointing suspicion back at his wife. He stated that he no longer trusted her and implied that he suspected she may have been to blame for Paulette's death. Whether this was through a willful act or due to some type of neglect was not made clear. The couple's relationship, rocky before the tragedy, was now completely ruptured beyond repair. They began fighting over custody of their remaining daughter, Lizette. Mauricio at first denied his wife's permission to see their daughter, who was being cared for by his family. The situation became so heated that neither Mauricio nor his family attended Paulette's April 6th funeral. The Hebatas were excluded from attending, quote, per an agreement. Lizette filed for custody of her daughter, which was granted a month later, and the couple ended their marriage soon afterward. Alberto Basbas resigned from his position as attorney general due to the intense scrutiny he received over this case. Although he still defended the investigation into Paulette's disappearance and the conclusions made by his office, Basbas said that the public's confidence in him had eroded so much, it was best to turn over the position to new leadership. Indeed, the public was outraged at how so many resources could have been employed to find a missing child. Over 30 investigators were assigned to the case, dozens of officers took part in the search as well, and police tracking dogs were utilized. And yet the child lay just a few inches away from where she was last seen and wasn't discovered. People began asking, who were they trying to protect? Some thought the Hebatas had been given a pass due to their wealth and status. But these same people failed to mention that Paulette's parents were the first suspects police zeroed in on. The case would remain a controversial one, even to this day, with many still believing someone got away with murdering a beautiful four-year-old girl. Lizette Fada continued to be harassed and accused of killing her child for years afterwards. In 2012, she sat down for a television interview in which she described the constant harassment and written threats she still received regularly. She said Paulette's sister, 
hearing the rumors about her mother, asked her point blank if she had killed Paulette. I guess the bizarre way this poor little girl was found seemed too far-fetched for most people to believe foul play was not involved. But unlike the JonBenet Ramsey case, where initial mistakes made by investigators almost guaranteed her murder would remain unsolved, there was abundant forensic evidence in Paulette's case that has led most to conclude that her death was a tragic accident. Five different agencies, including the FBI, were brought in to analyze the evidence in Paulette's case and make a conclusion as to the manner of her death. Here are some of their findings. Paulette's bed had been made up each day by tightly tucking in the fitted sheet at the foot of the bed. Paulette had shifted her body enough during sleep to fall into a gap between the frame and the mattress, and wedged under the fitted sheet, she went unseen. Searchers had looked under the bed, but because the mattress rested on top of a platform, she had not fallen to the floor where they could have seen her. A recreation using a girl approximately the same size as Paulette was conducted and it clearly showed how easily a small child could have fallen into that space. The top sheet had been taken as evidence the first day Paulette was reported missing. When other agencies analyzed this, along with the sheet she was found entangled in, they discovered corresponding stains of urine and other bodily fluids matched to the same areas on both the flat and fitted sheets. This indicated that when found, Paulette's body was still lying in the same position as the first day she went missing. In other words, there was no evidence that her body had been moved and then placed back in the room later. It was confirmed that the cause of death determined by the autopsy could have been caused by the compression of the lungs in the way Paulette's body was found positioned. The autopsy reports also confirmed that areas of lividity on Paulette's body corresponded to the body having lain in the same position at death as when found. But how did no one notice the fluids or the smells of a body in decomposition when they were in such close proximity? An initial and somewhat cursory search of Paulette's room was done on the first day, but investigators quickly theorized that she must have been taken due to her physical limitations. The attorney general admitted as much in defending his investigation, telling reporters, we were concentrating the search outside the home. A tracking dog brought into the Hibata home was given the top sheet taken off Paulette's bed to use as a reference scent. The dog immediately moved towards Paulette's bed, but the handler redirected him away from it thinking he was picking up on the reference scent. Lizette's friend, who had slept in Paulette's bed, only lay on top of the covers without pulling any of them off the bed. And I'd imagine she must be haunted by the idea that she slept practically lying over the little girl's body. I know I would be. By the second day, the family had been moved out of the home while the investigation continued. No one returned to Paulette's bedroom until the ninth day. That's when the smell was detected, leading to the discovery. Most likely in order to attempt some type of damage control for this glaring oversight, the forensics team was summoned in the early hours of the morning to videotape the recreated discovery of the body. Both Erica and Martha Casimiro, the two nannies, stated that they had made Paulette's bed after her disappearance and did not believe she could have been in the room the entire time. But photos taken on day one showed that the bed was not fully made. Only the top blanket had been pulled up and straightened over the pillows near the headboard not by the foot of the bed where Paulette was found. Erica made another statement that I think provides more evidence that the search initially conducted by the family could have easily missed finding the little girl. Although Erica makes the statement to prove the opposite. Quote, I looked in the bathroom, under the bed, and in the closet. I also went into the parents' bedroom, her sister's bedroom, and from there we started looking for her again. End quote. 
It's clear that they made a valiant search to find little Paulette, but did not look in the one place where it could have made a difference. Paulette Habatafara was buried in Mexico City in 2010, but her remains were exhumed seven years later, and the family had her body cremated. Much was made of the red and blue reindeer print pajamas that were observed by a reporter and captured on film. Some insist that the appearance of those pajamas recorded days before Paulette was found in the same clothing proves she was murdered and her body planted back in her room almost 10 days later. An analysis of the recording was done and concluded that the pajamas were a much larger size than the size of the clothing that Paulette wore. In fact, the pajamas in the video were an identical pair of the size worn by Lizette, her older sister, just as her mother had stated. Just recently, in 2020, a series titled The Search was released on Netflix. It follows the investigation into a missing child in Mexico City. It's based on the Paulette Hibata case and is available to stream right now. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once again, I'd like to thank Maria for suggesting this case to me. I hope you all found it as interesting as I did. Next week, I'll be back with another listener suggestion. You guys have uncovered some truly unique true crime cases, and I'm enjoying sharing them with my audience. Make sure to follow, subscribe, hit the like button or whatever, but mainly just listen. And oh yeah, tell a friend. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Research and audio editing were done by Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>